Long before Woodrow Wilson became the 28th president of the United States of America, he tells the story of entering a barber shop for a routine haircut. Wilson became acutely aware that a profound personality had just entered the establishment and taken the salon chair seat next to him. It didn't take him long to conclude that this man had to be an individual of deep faith in God. For merely hearing his relationship with his barber could tell him that it was as if he had attended an evangelistic worship service. Wilson noted how this man seemed to carry himself not with a demeanor that was boisterous and demonstrative, but rather he carried himself with sincerity and humility. Wilson also noted that this man seemed as if he took a personal interest in the one who was just cutting his hair. After this man got up and left, Wilson asked the identity of that man, and the reply came, that was D.L. Moody. Woodrow Wilson later wrote, it seemed as if by his mere presence, everyone's conversations and thoughts were lifted. That by his mere presence, it was as if we had gone to a worship service that day. The barbershop was transformed into a sanctuary because the man of God allowed the God of the man to shine through. My friends, that is an excellent description of the good life. It's the man of God who allows the God of the man to shine through so that a barber shop becomes a sanctuary. This morning we continue our sermon series through the Sermon on the Mount. We find ourselves in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. I invite you to take a Bible and turn there. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Matthew chapter 5. Verses 13 to 16. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. It gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Heavenly Father, our prayer this morning is that you will think with my mind and speak with my lips, that you will overtake my body, that you will help me to preach. Oh, Father, I pray that your word goes forth with clarity and with conviction, and I pray that it will land on fertile soil. So Lord, give us not only a preaching lip, but give us a listening ear, so we may hear the very word of God. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We've said before that Jesus is a masterful communicator. Jesus knows how to preach. 
He knows the value of a well-constructed introduction. For the purpose of any introduction is to set the table of what the sermon is going to be. And so Jesus has been setting the table in the Beatitudes. Over the last eight weeks, we've been going over those Beatitudes one by one. And Jesus says that the good life begins with a proper position and a proper posture. For blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In order for you to have the good life and to be in Christ, you must come as a bankrupt spiritual beggar before the Lord. You and I come on bended knee with head downcast, eyes closed, arms outstretched, palms open heavenward, and we're asking for help from the Holy One. And then once we come to God in that posture of humility and contrition, we uh, come with a perpetual sense of sadness over our sinfulness. So we have godly grief and we sorrow as one who desires repentance in the inmost part. So Jesus said, blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. And then Jesus says, the good life means that you are meek before the Lord. That doesn't mean weak. That just simply means that you live your life under complete control and surrender to the sovereign God. All that culminates in a hungering and thirsting for righteousness. For you crave Christ and you're starving for the Savior. What flows from that is a desire to be merciful because the mercy that God has given to you prompts you to be merciful unto others. You and I desire purity in the inmost parts. We long to make peace in a problematic world by removing obstacles so that true reconciliation might be achieved. And Jesus says, when you live the good life, you will be persecuted. But when that persecution comes, don't be sad and don't be bad and don't be mad. You just be glad. I want you to rejoice because great is your reward in heaven. I want you to rejoice because yours is the kingdom of heaven. I want you to rejoice because what's been done to you has been done to the prophets of long ago. So when the world doesn't understand you and when the world persecutes you, I want you to skip with excitement and jump for joy. And then when you get through with the Beatitudes, the only natural question is this. How does the good life permeate a bad culture? Jesus has just spent the last eight Beatitudes describing the good life. And the question must be asked, how does that good life permeate a very bad culture? And Jesus gives the answer in verses 13 and 14. Jesus, turning to the crowd, says, you are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. The way God gets the good life so that it permeates a bad culture is through you. You are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. Jesus places the word you in emphatic position. Most of the time, whenever anyone spoke Greek or wrote Greek, the sentences were constructed with the verb followed by the subject followed by the object. If an author or a speaker wanted to emphasize a certain word, all he would do is throw it in front of the verb. And so in this passage, the first word is the word you. Literally what Jesus is saying is you, you are the salt of the earth. You, you are the light of the world. It's not that Jesus has a stuttering problem. It's that Jesus wants to be very clear that the way the good life permeates a very bad culture is that God is going to do it through you. Because you are salt and you 
are light. Jesus not only places the word you in emphatic position, but it's also important for us to note that Jesus uses the second person plural. He's not saying you individually, but he's saying you collectively. He's saying this to all of his followers. He's saying this to his church. In good southern vernacular, what Jesus is saying is y'all are the salt of the earth and y'all are the light of the world. It's not just you and you and you, but it's you all. It's all of us. We are to be the salt of the earth and we are the light of the world. This is a profound pronouncement on the lips of Jesus. Jesus is giving us a pronouncement of our identity. He says you are salt and you are light. I want you to notice that he doesn't say you will be salt and light or you ought to be salt and light or you should be salt and light. But he says you are salt and light. This is a statement of identity and you know as well as I know that identity always precedes activity. Who we are influences what we do. Now, there are a lot of people in the church and outside the church that get that biblically backwards. Somehow people think what we do determines who we are. And that is backwards because who we are determines what we do because our identity always precedes our activity. And so Jesus is saying, you are salt and you are light. Even on days when you don't feel very salty, you're salt. Even on days when you don't feel very bright, you're light. You are salt and you are light. If you are in Christ, this is your identity. If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is who you are. This is your identity and your identity impacts your activity. So you are salt and you are light. One of the more pleasurable things I get to do sometimes as a minister is I get to stand with a man and a woman at their marriage ceremony before God in the presence of a sacred assembly and we get to go through marriage vows. They exchange vows, they exchange rings, but it only occurred to me a couple of years ago that towards the end of that ceremony a profound pronouncement is made. Before this announcement is made, all you got is a guy and a gal standing before you. But then the minister, towards the end of it, says, by the power invested in me as a minister of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, I now pronounce you husband and wife. Do you know before that pronouncement, they're not husband and wife. It's just a man and a woman standing there. Now, you know by them standing there, they want to be husband and wife. I mean, they really want to be husband and wife. They've sent out all the invitations. You're there in the crowd. The minister is there. They're standing before the Lord. They really desire to be husband and wife. But before that pronouncement, it's just a guy and it's just a gal. It's just a man and it's just a woman. But when that pronouncement is made by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, this man and this woman are then declared husband husband and wife. And the minister says something like this, whatever God joins together, let no man tear asunder. And then, what every guy waits for. <laughs> and now, my friend, for the very first time, you may kiss your bride. Now, that's a true statement. For the very first time, now they may have kissed as guy and gal before, but they've never kissed as husband and wife before. So for the very first time, my friend, you can now kiss your bride. That is just a precursor of what's to come later that night when they consummate the covenant bond of marriage. 
And in that moment of proclamation, they are declared husband and wife. That is their identity. From that day forward, their activity flows from their identity so that uh, what they do and who they are is bound in that statement that you are husband and wife. And ideally, for the rest of their life, until the Lord takes one of them home, they act out their identity. They act as husband and wife. So as husband and wife, they share an intimacy one with the other that is not shared with any other person on the planet. They are intimately bound together physically and spiritually and emotionally. They're able to share a home together. Potentially, they're able to raise a family together. They share dreams together. They model for us what it looks like as Christ and the church. And and a husband and wife come together. But the moment they're declared, the moment their identity is transformed is in that proclamation under the authority of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, this man, this woman has now become husband and wife. It's a profound pronouncement. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, makes a similar profound pronouncement. He says, if you're in Christ, you are salt of the earth. And you are light of the world. You know, there are some days that you're excited about being a husband and wife. The other days, you ain't very excited about being a husband and wife. There's some days it's fun to be a husband and wife. There's some days it ain't so fun to be a husband and wife. There's some days you feel like a husband and wife. There are other days you don't feel like a husband and wife. But that doesn't change the identity that you are husband and you are wife. In the same way, when Jesus says you are salt and you are light, there may be days when you feel like salt and you feel like light. And there are other days when you don't feel like salt and don't feel like light. But you're still salt and light if you're in Christ. This is a statement of identity. This is who you are. And identity always precedes activity. So Jesus says you are the salt of the earth. What do you mean by that? Well, salt was a valuable commodity in antiquity. Outside of the sun and the sky, it was regarded as the second most precious commodity on the planet. In fact, some Roman soldiers were paid in salt. That's where the expression, he's worth his salt, originates. If a soldier was good, he would get more salt, so he was worth the salt that he received. Because salt had numerous usages. The way it was formed in the days of Jesus was that water was taken from the Dead Sea, and that water was evaporated by the use of heat. What was left behind was a salt crystal. Because the evaporation process was so ancient, There were times that that salt crystal could potentially dissolve and attract other chlorides like magnesium or potassium, and literally, it would change its molecular structure, change the compound of what it was. And so Jesus said, there's a a truth that the salt can become unsalty, and everybody knew what Jesus was meaning by that. Now, in our day, we know that salt is salt is salt. There's no way that salt can lose its properties of being salty. But in the days of Jesus, that salt chloride could potentially dissolve, attract other chlorides, and it would lose its properties. And Jesus says, you know the value of good salt because it can be used in a lot of ways. It can be used to preserve food. It can be used to season food for taste. It can be used for medicinal purposes, for it can be applied to cuts and scrapes, and it can heal the wound. Salt had a lot of uses. 
there have been a lot of ink that's been spilt in the decades and centuries to follow to try to answer the question, what does Jesus mean when he says you are salt? Well, what do he mean by that? And some people say, well, what Jesus means is that as salt seasons food, so we as Christians are to flavor life. Because following Christ is not boring and it is not bland. Still other people have said, well, the reason he says that we're salt is because we're to be healing agents in the world. And even though that salt may sting, there is healing in the hurting, so we are called to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Then there are other people who have said, well, the reason Jesus said that we are salt is because salt creates thirst. If you eat something with a lot of salt, you can't wait to get a big jug of water. And as Christians, we are to create a craving for Christ in our culture. And you need to know that technically I don't disagree with any of those understandings of the comparison of salt. But can I just say that I think what Jesus is basically meaning is that fundamentally the purpose of salt in the first century was to preserve food. The purpose of salt in the first century was to keep the food from spoiling. The purpose of salt was to constrict contamination, to keep decay at bay, to lock in the freshness of the food. And this is what Jesus has in mind. He says, you are salt of the earth. What is your task? Your task and my task, we are to be preservers of truth. We are to constrict contamination in our culture. We are to keep decay at bay We are to uh, identify sin and remove it. We are to constrict that contamination in life. So we are salt. And Jesus says that salt, when it's good, is very valuable. That salt is guarded. It has a job to do. It's valuable to the one who crafted it and made it. And so you are valuable and you are guarded by God and you are useful in his hands. But just as salt can become saltless, somehow we can lose our influence. And when that happens, we're like unsalty salt. We're useless. What, What does the farmer do with unsalty salt? Well, he can't throw it on the manure pile because... Today's manure pile is tomorrow's fertilizer, and there's no way he's going to contaminate next year's crops by putting unsalty salt there. So the only thing he can do is just just throw it in the streets and let it be trampled underfoot by men. Jesus says there's no good use of, of salt that somehow has lost its property of doing its job. So you, my friend, you are valuable in the sight of God. You exist to preserve truth. You exist to be a a preserving agent in the world. And sometimes salt is subtle. Sometimes you can put it on your food and you don't even know it's there until you taste it. And if that's true in the 21st century, way in the first century, if salt wasn't present or if bad salt had been applied to the fish, you could smell it before you'd see it. I mean, if it... If no salt was applied to the meat, that meat could become rotten in moments, in days. And it was obvious you could smell it before you could see it. And Jesus says, who you are, you are salt of the earth. You're a preserver of truth. Sometimes it's subtle. By your mere presence, you preserve truth. By your mere presence, you elevate conversations. By your mere presence, you direct people's very thoughts to God. So that a barber shop can be transformed 
into a sanctuary so that your car can be changed into a house of worship so that when you're standing in the God-forsaken place called Walmart, that even there, God can show up. When you're there in the grocery line of Publix, you can transform that moment into a glorifying moment unto the Lord. By your mere presence, you impact society. By your mere presence, you transform, you preserve the truth. By your mere presence, you elevate thoughts and conversations unto the Lord. And sometimes you're subtle and sometimes you're sly. But if you weren't there, decay would be more rampant than it currently is. If you weren't present, heresy would be more rampant than it currently is. Immorality would be more rampant than it currently is. You, my friends, are preservers of truth. So Jesus says you are salt of the earth. He also says you are the light of the world. Now this analogy is amazing to me because this is the only analogy that Jesus uses of himself and his disciples. In John's gospel, Jesus offers about seven messianic metaphors. He lays claim to his divine identity by speaking the language of God, I am. And on seven occasions, he says things like, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am resurrection and life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And then ultimately he says, I am the vine. And yet the only analogy that Jesus uses of himself and shares with his disciples is the one found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. There, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. In John chapter 8, he said, I am the light of the world. You look all throughout the gospel, you will never hear on the lips of Jesus, you are the bread of life. You will never hear Jesus say, you are the gate. He will never hear Jesus say, you are the good shepherd. He will never say, you are resurrection and life. And Jesus will certainly never say, you are the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through you. Jesus will never say, you are the vine. But here, Jesus shares an analogy of himself with his people. He says, I am the light of the world. In a place in Isaiah's book, Isaiah says in chapter 9 that the people are groping in darkness and a great light has come. In John's prologue, speaking of Jesus, says in him is life, and that life is the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot comprehend it. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And then in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. This is the only analogy that he shares with us. He says, as I am light, you are light. Now, what does he mean by that? What is the purpose of light? purpose of light is to dispel darkness. The purpose of light is to dispel darkness. Jesus says, this is who you are. This is your identity. You're a dispeller of darkness. You cast light into a very dim, dark, dingy world. Now keep in mind that Jesus, once again, is speaking in the first century, before the days of electricity. I always kind of wonder about this because Jesus, who knows all things, I wonder, I mean, Jesus certainly knows that electricity will be discovered and that one day people are going to be able to come into a room and flip on a switch and the whole room will light up. 
but he's living in the days of the first century, in the days of antiquity, when there is no light switch in the house. I mean, the only way you get in there and get light is to light an oil lamp or uh, to uh, uh, light a candle. And I'm sure that Jesus said, hey guys, a day's coming when all you got to do is go into a room and flip a switch and there's going to be bright light. But uh, in our culture, I mean, all you got is a lamp. All you got is, is a candle. And Jesus says, you understand that when the sun sets over the western horizon, there is complete darkness. And the only way a man or a woman can light up the house is by lighting a lamp. And that lamp dispels darkness so that he or she can make their way around the house and not bump into anything. They can clearly see what's in front of them. For the purpose of light is to dispel darkness. And Jesus says, that's what you are. You are a dispeller of darkness. Now, if salt is subtle, light is unmistakable. If salt can kind of be embedded in the culture, light is aggressive. Light is obvious. Salt can be hidden for a little while. Light can never be hidden. Jesus says, it's not that you're either or, you're both and. You are salt and you are light. There are times when you're subtle. There are times when you are obnoxiously obvious. Because you are salt and you are light. As salt, you preserve truth. As light, you dispel darkness. And Jesus goes on and he says, you know how foolish it would be to light a lamp, set it on a table, and cover it with a bushel. Not only is that counterintuitive, but can I add my own two cents? That's just stupid, right? I mean, that's ignorant. You're in darkness. You want to be able to see. The last thing you're going to do is light a lamp only to cover it up and try to douse the light. My friends, Jesus did not bring you out of darkness so that you might hide your faith. Jesus did not bring you out of darkness so that you would try to douse the light of the Lord in your existence. There is nowhere in the Bible where there is a positive portrait of a silent saint. Nowhere. There's nowhere in the Bible where it gives a positive picture of a secret saint. Your faith, while it is personal, is never private. Yes, we are to be subtle, subtle as salt. But yes, we're also to be as obvious, as obvious as light in a dark room so that the children have it exactly right. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel? No, I'm going to let it shine. I won't let Satan blow it out. I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Why? Because you are salt of the earth and you are light of the world. If you're in Christ, this is who you are. So you are preserver of truth and you are dispeller of darkness. But if you're anything like me, you look around our culture and you quickly get alarmed. I don't have to tell you nor convince you that our world is decaying at a rapid rate. Just a few years ago, what was right is now called into question as wrong. What was up is now down. What was truth is now a lie. In just a few years, our culture has been turned on its head topsy-turvy. You wonder what, what's happened, what, what's gone on. 
This past week, I came across a great question. The question was, is there too much world in the church or is there not enough church in the world? And the answer to that question is yes. Yes. There is too much world in the church. There is too much sin in the camp. There is too much worldly selfishness in the lives of saints. Yes, there's too much world in the church. But it's also true that there's not enough church in the world. We are called to be salt. But salt was never intended to stay in the salt shaker. We are to be scattered upon our culture. We don't run from our culture, we run to our culture. We live independent of our culture, but we live embedded in our culture. Why? Because we are to be salt and light. We're preservers of truth and dispellers of darkness. You've probably seen the pictures that when tragedy strikes, maybe a bomb goes off, that there are people who are running away from the debris. Masses of people running, trying to seek shelter. But if you look closely on a lot of those pictures, sometimes there are individuals running towards the tragedy. Sometimes there are people running towards the debris, towards the explosion. You know what we call those people? We call them heroes. We call them first responders. We call them police officers, firefighters, EMS workers. We elevate them and we say, you know what? They run towards the disaster. Jesus says that's exactly who we are. We are salt and we are light. We're not supposed to stay in the salt shaker. We're not supposed to try to douse our light. At times we're subtle, but all the time we're obvious. We are salt and we are light. So we run towards our culture, not away from it. We're independent of our culture, but we're never isolated from it. You know, when, um, when we have this mentality that our identity is that in Christ we are salt and light, it changes how we look at everything. Uh, our job is no longer a job. It's a ministry outpost. Our, our children don't exist just to do our bidding, and we're not nice to them just so they'll choose a nice nursing home for us to go in when we're old. We don't have children just to get a tax deduction. No, we realize that God has given us children because we have to make disciples out of them so that when we propel them from the home, they have a great gospel influence wherever they land. See, this changes how we look at everything. Even church is changed because the church doesn't exist to meet all of your needs and to meet all of my needs. We're not here for us. We're not here for ourselves. We come into this place to be reminded that we are salt, not to stay in the salt shaker. We're to be scattered out so that we preserve truth in the culture, so that we dispel darkness in a dingy world. We are to be reminded that we exist to make an impact on our Father's world. That's who we are. That's why we exist. So this morning, can I just encourage all of us that it's time for us to pass the salt and turn on the light. I mean, it, it, it's time for us to take seriously our identity in Christ because our identity precedes our activity. Who we are determines what we do. 
And so it's time for us to, to pass the salt to preserve truth. It's time for us to turn on the light and dispel darkness. So this morning, can I just encourage all of us who claim to be in Christ, can we just pass the salt and turn on the light? When it comes to the words we speak, please pass the salt and turn on the light. When it comes to how we enter our home after a very long day, please pass the salt and turn on the light. When it comes to how you treat your spouse, can you please pass the salt and turn on the light? When it comes to how you uh, look at your children, can you please pass the salt and turn on the light? When you miss a putt on the green, can you please pass the salt and turn on the light? When you're on malfunction junction at 7 a.m. any day during the week, can you please pass the salt and turn on the light? When you're in that line at Walmart, can you please pass the salt and turn on the light? When you're in the barber shop or the beauty salon, can you please pass the salt and turn on the light when you're tenacious about telling the story can you pass the salt and turn on the light when you're eager about evangelism can you please pass the salt and turn on the light when you're a defender of marriage by God's design can you pass the salt and turn on the light when you are, are clear about your convictions can you pass the salt and turn on the light when you declare that Jesus is the sole sovereign savior of the universe can you please pass the salt and turn on the light my friends I'm just trying to remind us that we are salt and we are light is our identity in Christ. Therefore, we are to pass the salt and turn on the light. Amen. It was a fourth century archbishop, John Chrysostom, who said that if Christians lived the life that's expected of them, unbelief would disappear. That was stated in the fourth century when things were very racy and raunchy all the way back in the fourth century. We've come a mighty long way. We live in the 21st century. And the statement's still true that if Christians live the life that's expected of them, unbelief would disappear. Why? It's not because great is us, but greater is he who's in us than he who's in the world. And if Christ is in you, my friend, this morning, I pronounce upon you what Jesus pronounces upon you. You are salt of the earth. And you, you're light of the world. So get out of the salt shaker. Be salty. Be bright for the kingdom. Even on days you don't feel like it, you're still salt. And you're still light. God values you this much. He, he honors you this much. He loves you this much. That he says, I want you, I want you to take this good life and permeate a bad culture. And the way you're going to do it is that you, my friend, you, you are going to be salt and you are going to be light. You're going to be preserver of truth. You're going to be a dispeller of darkness. So you, please. Pass the salt and turn on the light. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. If there's anyone listening to my voice who has never claimed your identity upon themselves, if there's a person who has never accepted the truth of your word to realize that you died their death, you were nailed to their cross, buried in their tomb, and you rose to give them eternal life, Lord, on this day I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit you make that clear to a listening heart. Oh, Father, today I pray that 
individuals will come to faith in Christ, they'll flock down this aisle and they'll long to be salt and light in a world that is quickly contaminated and decayed. Oh, Father, for those of us who are believers, for those of us who somehow feel as if it's okay for us to to be so subtle that it's almost as if we're silent, uh, to to, to be brought into light only to, to douse it again, oh, Father, please forgive us of our sin. Help us to be bold. Help us to be obvious. Give us opportunities this day be salt and light. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.